In Hebrews 13 and verse 4 of that chapter, the apostle commands his readers with these words. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Don't just remember those brothers and sisters who are in prison. Don't just call them to mind, the apostle is saying, but remember them as though you actually were imprisoned with them, as though that were your experience. And act in the same manner toward those siblings in Christ, he says, who are mistreated in any way. The apostle Paul writes in a very similar manner in Romans 12, where he instructs the church, saying, We, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Rejoice, he says, therefore, with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Or as Paul puts it again in 1 Corinthians 12, There are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, essentially what these passages in Hebrews and Romans and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in the New Testament, they're telling us that to be a Christian person means that you must, as an expression of your union with Jesus, live in organic living communion with all other Christian persons. Your life is united to theirs. If one member of the body is suffering, you're not just called to feel sorry for them or to occasionally think about it. You're called to enter into that suffering emotionally and spiritually as though it were your own experience, as though you actually were suffering as they are. And likewise, if another member of the body is rejoicing, you are called to enter into their joy with them as well. This mutuality of experience within the body is a fundamental aspect of the Christian ethical life, but it raises the question, how in a global church, a multicultural church, a church of many languages and nations, how do we actually do this? How do we enter into the experience of the body of Christ at large? around the world, or even in our neighborhood. If I've never been imprisoned, if I've never been abused, if I've never been assaulted, if I've never been betrayed, if I've never experienced homelessness or starvation or systematic persecution, how can I enter in to the experience of my brother or my sister who is experiencing these things? How can I remember them as though I was in prison with them. Beloved, this is one of the many reasons why God has given us the Psalms. You see, the Psalms are a book of prayers written for us in the first person so that we can pray them on our own lips as though the situations that the psalmist described were actually happening to us. And that's because they are happening to us. We are in these places of desperation and need through our organic communion with the body of Christ. Friends, you see, the, the Psalms are written out of all kinds of experiences. 
Right? The psalmist prayed to God in the midst of persecution and betrayal and hunger and violence and abuse and confusion and disappointment and depression and fear and anger. Every circumstance. All of these circumstances, the psalmists cry out to God and give us a way to enter into those experiences ourselves. To emotionally and spiritually embrace the sufferings of others with whom we dwell in the body. And thus to fulfill the teaching of the apostles. So so what do you do if you come to a, a psalm that describes an experience that you haven't personally had yourself? You enter into that psalm fully. You take it on your lips, seeing it as an opportunity to do what the apostles tell us to do. To weep with those who weep. To rejoice with those who rejoice. To remember those who are in prison as though we were in prison with them. And also for all those who are mistreated, since we also are in the body. I invite you now to listen carefully to God's holy and errant word once more as it comes to us from Psalm 55. It's printed for you, friends, on the back of your order of worship. And as you'll see in this psalm, this is a time of desperation um, for David as he writes it. Um, Some have speculated that perhaps he had written this psalm um, during the rebellion of Absalom, his son, um, who threatened his life and his kingdom and sought to put him to death. His own son sought to kill David. We don't know for sure that that is um, the context, but it, it certainly fits in many ways. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word from Psalm 55. To the choirmaster with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. 
let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear this portion of your word this morning, and to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest it, that we might even more embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 55 begins a section of the Psalter where six consecutive psalms, a big portion of the rest of the summer that we're going to spend together, Six consecutive psalms, Psalms 55 to 60, uh, which each include a strong emphasis on asking God to judge and even destroy the wicked. So I just want to talk about that for a moment, that dynamic that we're about to enter into together as a church because of the, um, the way in which the Spirit has arranged the order of these psalms. In our psalm today, David says this about the wicked. He says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. You, O God, David says later in the psalm, you will cast them down into the pit of destruction. In Psalm 56, David entreats God with these words. He says, in wrath, cast down, cast down the peoples, O God. In Psalm 57, he says, God will put to shame him who tramples me. And I I should say, all of these psalms are attributed to David, all six of these psalms. In Psalm 58, David boldly prays to God. He says, let the wicked vanish like water that runs away. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. That's a powerful image. In Psalm 59, David says to God, Rouse yourself to punish the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. And then in Psalm 60, David says, With God we shall do valiantly. 
It is he who shall tread down all our foes. This emphasis on asking God to judge the wicked and even bring about their destruction, it's not limited, of course, to this uh, little section of the Psalter. These kinds of sentiments appear all over the place in the Psalms. If you go out of the you know, comfortable corners of Psalm um, you know, uh, 23 and Psalm 100, um, you find them very quickly all over the place, these kinds of sentiments. You could make the argument, actually, that asking God to judge the wicked is one of the primary emphases of the Psalter as a whole. It's unavoidable, actually, I think, if you read them in their entirety. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that this kind of language, this kind of emphasis in the prayers of the Psalter creates some amount of tension with our sort of intuitive modern sensibilities about what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be holy, what it means to pray to God, right? It's one thing to acknowledge that God actually does judge the wicked as an abstract possibility, right? But it's another thing for us to plead with God to do it and to do it soon, to do it even now, to act in history, to judge the wicked and bring about their downfall. And and it's another thing on top of that for this to be not just something that we sort of like happen to pray, but it's actually a righteous thing for us to pray. It's actually what the Spirit has given us to pray for. That, I think, in many ways doesn't fit our natural inclinations about what it means to be spiritual or to be holy, to pray for the judgment of the wicked. But, beloved, where tension exists between our natural inclinations and the Spirit of God speaking to us in the Scriptures, it is our natural inclinations which must be conformed to the Scriptures not the other way around. In many ways, that's the story of the Christian life, right? Is is slowly over time our natural inclinations being conformed to what the Scripture says is true and good and beautiful, right? And the unavoidable reality, the unavoidable reality is that our psalm this morning and many other psalms in the Psalter teach us to pray to God to judge the wicked, to do it, to intervene, to bring about their downfall, even their destruction. And so we must say to do this kind of thing, to pray in this way, it's not arrogant, it's not callous, it's holy. It's a holy way to pray because God has told us that it is. And we will continue to wrestle with this dynamic, with the the holiness of this kind of prayer in the weeks to come. Our psalm this morning is a long one, but it's worth taking a few minutes to look at the the flow of the argument that it makes as as David works through um, what he's he's praying to the Lord. In many ways, this psalm is is a kind of it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a movement. As a psalm, you have to see that the, the psalmist is almost wrestling with his own heart at the beginning. He's moving through the situation, and by the end of the psalm, he comes to a new place, a new place of confidence and trust in the Lord. And I want us to see that 
movement that the psalmist makes in this psalm. The psalm begins in verses 1 and 2 as the psalmist asks for God to hear his prayer. It's a pretty standard, uh, normal, regular kind of way to open a psalm. Give ear to my prayer, O God, the psalmist says, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. That's often what we're most afraid of, isn't it, when we pray that the Lord has hidden himself from us. And so the psalmist addresses that reality directly. He says, hide not yourself from me, O God. Don't hide yourself from me. Give ear to my prayer. There's a rawness and honesty to that way of praying. That is, of course, the question. Does God hear me when I pray? And the psalmist addresses it directly and pleads with the Lord to hear him. Attend to me, he says. Answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. But why does the psalmist need for the Lord to hear his prayer? Why is it so important? As he explains in verse 3, it is because of the oppression of the wicked. The wicked are after him. They're coming into his life. He depicts the wicked as dropping trouble on him, as though though they are falling from the sky to plague him and afflict him. Then in verses 4 to 8, the psalmist describes the horror that he feels at what is happening to him. This is the very um, transparent language that's used here. He says that his heart is in anguish because of what is happening to him. That the, the terrors of death have fallen upon him. That fear has overwhelmed him. That trembling has overwhelmed him. And do you know what he says he wants to do in the midst of that? He wants to get out of there. Right? He wants to escape these feelings of fear and trembling and horror and terror and anguish. He says, oh, that I had wings like a dove. It's almost like he's saying this to himself, right? As well as to the Lord. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Oh, that I, in and of myself, was capable of escaping from this place. I would fly away and be at rest. I would wander far away, he says. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. I would get out of this place. I would end all this turmoil inside of me and around me. If it was up to me, this is what the psalmist says he would want just to be taken out of the place where he's at. The anguish of his soul, the fear that he feels, the confusion and terror. He just wants to be delivered from it all. Hang on to that. That's an important beginning point for this psalm, that that is what the psalmist says he wants. In verses 9 to 15, the psalmist then cries out to the Lord about the wicked who are set against him. He describes their violence, their corruption, the way that they seem at the moment to have the upper hand, the way they are ruling the city not for its good, but bringing about trouble and oppression and violence. He he details how those um, who now have become his enemies were once his friends, how he had trusted them, 
and broken bread with them, and that makes their betrayal all the more painful, for now they have turned against him. Then he prays for God to act. In verse 15, he says, Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Then in verses 16 to 21, the psalmist assures himself that God will hear his prayers. He says, I call to God, and the Lord, Yahweh, will save me. He uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, will save me. He says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and and I moan, and he hears my voice, the psalmist says. Then in verse 22, at the the end of the psalm, the psalmist describes the promise that he is clinging to. And notice the difference here from where he was before when he was saying, oh, that I had wings like a dove and I would fly away. Here he says in verse 22 at the end of the psalm, cast your burden on Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. This, I think, is a fascinating development in the psalm. It's one that we must pay attention to. Remember, earlier, the psalm was just saying he wanted to get out of there. I wish I had wings like a dove. I wish I could fly away. I wish I could wander far away, find a spot in the wilderness. I wish I could hurry and find shelter from the storm that's around me. Friends, that's an understandable desire, right, when we're in times of turmoil and trouble. Who among us finding ourselves in a situation where we're afraid and overwhelmed doesn't want what the psalmist says he wants? We want it just to get away from it. We don't like the difficulty or the discomfort or the confusion or the pain. We want to fly away and be at rest. We just want to go out and find a safe and isolated spot where no one can touch us. But the psalmist You see, he he goes through that, he he expresses that desire, but then he wrestles in the rest of the psalm with the truth of God's faithfulness, with the promise that God actually does hear him, that God actually does see the trouble that he's in, that he does see the oppression of the wicked, and that God will, in his own good time, act. God will show up that he will judge the wicked, he will overturn evil. And because of this movement, this wrestling that the psalmist has undergone, at the end of the psalm, he changes his tune. Right? Instead of desiring to escape, he says, now cast your burden on Yahweh. It's like he's speaking to us, to the church as a whole, inviting us into this place where he has come. Cast your burden on Yahweh. And he will sustain you. Not he will get you out of there. But he will sustain you, he says. Because he will never permit the righteous to be moved. The path isn't escape. It's being sustained by the hand of the Lord. Rooted, steadfast, built up in him, unmovable. That movement of the argument of the psalm from, oh, I wish I had wings like a dove so I could fly away, to cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. It's a profound movement. 
the argument of the psalm. It's, it's moving from believing that what I need above all things is to somehow just escape my situation. It's moving from that place to trusting now that God is with me in the situation where I find myself. And although it's still confusing and still difficult and disorienting, I can trust that he will take care of me, that he will sustain me in that place. Friends, that is the movement of faith. That is the movement from immaturity to maturity in terms of our trust in the Lord and his kindness and love for us. Moving beyond just get me out of here, Lord, to strengthen me, sustain sustain me in the midst of the brokenness and the difficulty of this world. Friends, I don't know what situation you find yourself in this morning, but I'm guessing that at least some of us are longing for escape. Right? It's so easy to look for ways out, to search for things that will distract us or to turn off our emotions somehow or just to disappear physically or emotionally or spiritually from the hard things that we find ourselves in the midst of. But beloved, what you need to see about this verse at the end of the psalm is that the psalmist is giving you a promise here. He's addressing it to you. He says, cast your burdens on the Lord. Cast your burden on the Lord, he says. Do that and this is what God will do for you in return. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. For he will never permit the righteous to be moved. I mean, mean, that's a promise right there, friends. And it's a promise very like the one that the Apostle Peter gave in his epistle reading, in our epistle reading this morning. Remember, he told his readers, resist the devil, he says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's nothing unique about your situation or mine. The same kind of suffering is being experienced by our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And then Peter says, and after you have suffered a little while, a little while, and indeed in light of the resurrection, all suffering in this life is truly only a little while. After you have suffered a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who has called you To his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, the promise of the psalmist and the promise of the apostle isn't that the Lord will pull us out of whatever crisis we find ourselves in, whatever overwhelming situation. The promise, friends, is that the Lord will sustain us in that place, that he will hold us steadfast, that he will be with us, and that we will not be moved. He will make us firm, the psalmist says, steadfast, immovable, for he will sustain us by his own right hand. This is the promise of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks um, for this psalm. We thank you for the promise that it gives us, Father. 
that as we cast our burdens on you, you will sustain us, that you will never permit the righteous to be moved. Father, this morning, help us to cling to that promise through your righteous and beloved Son with whom we are united, Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.